Do you know that you can see them from space? The Ten, the ten Commandments. You, you can see them from space. Did you know that? If you fly over uh, Murphy, North Carolina, you can see the Ten Commandments from space. Uh, the world's largest display of the Ten Commandments is out there in Murphy, North Carolina, in the mountains. Um, five foot tall letters, about 300 feet wide. Uh, the good people of the Church of God of Prophecy there in Murphy back in 1945 erected this massive, dis- massive display of the Ten Commandments. But in spite of their good efforts, it seems that uh, the understanding and even awareness of the Ten Commandments has fallen significantly in recent years in our country. Um, just anecdotally, Jay Leno goes out from time to time and he does his man-on-the-street interviews. Maybe you used to watch him. And he would go out and interview people and he stopped a couple of college girls. He was quizzing people on knowledge of the Bible and a couple of college girls, he stops them and asks them, name one of the Ten Commandments. Between the two of them, they came up with freedom of speech. Um, but before we are too hard on them, how many of the Ten Commandments could you name? There's a survey done by the Kelton Research Institute that found that Americans recalled the seven ingredients of a McDonald's Big Mac hamburger and members of TV's The Brady Bunch more easily than the Bible's Ten Commandments. What they found was uh, that 80% of a thousand respondents could name the burger's primary ingredient, two all-beef patties, right? But less than six in ten knew the commandment, thou shalt not kill. Less than half of the respondents, 45%, could recall the commandment, honor thy father and mother, but 62% knew the Big Mac had a pickle. Bobby and Peter, who are the least memorable names from the fictional Brady Bunch family, were remembered by 43% of the respondents topping the 34% who knew remember the Sabbath and 29% recalling do not make false idols. We simply don't know the Ten Commandments anymore. And if that's not enough in our culture, there is rising opposition from people with no less brilliant philosophical minds as George Carlin, um, who in an expletive-laden screed against the Ten Commandments says, okay, right off the bat, the first three commandments, Sabbath day, Lord's day, strange gods. He says this is spooky language, spooky language designed to scare and control primitive people. In no way does superstitious mumbo-jumbo like this apply to the lives of intelligent, civilized humans in the 21st century. Now you add to all of that this kind of lingering question in the back of our minds of verses we've read in the New Testament that say things like this. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Are the Ten Commandments even meaningful anymore? Do the Ten Commandments still matter? If you'll open up your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 5, that's the question that we want to try to address today. And... uh, You'll need your Bible, and we'll need to pray. 
So let's bow in prayer, if you would. God, give us ears to hear, eyes to see, uh, feet quick to obey that which you are about to show us. Lord, may your word be treasured more when we leave than when we came in. And so we submit to the Spirit's moving and using of your word amongst us now and ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, Ten Commandments. Here they are in crude summary form, okay? No other gods, no idols, don't misuse God's name, keep the Sabbath holy, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't lie, don't covet. But you knew that, right? You knew those, all ten of them, in order. Um, Now, while most Bible teachers will acknowledge today that the laws of Moses and all the detailed sections in Leviticus and what we're about to see in Deuteronomy for the next bunch of chapters don't have the same application to our lives today as they would have to an ancient Israelite living in the Promised Land. And while Bible scholars are agreed about those laws, that they don't have the same application for us today, those same Bible scholars are all in happy agreement that the Ten Commandments do have that kind of application to our lives together. Um, Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle, said it really well. He said, beware of despising the law of the Ten Commandments. Let us not suppose for a moment that it's set aside by the gospel or that Christians have nothing to do with it. The coming of Christ did not alter the position of the Ten Commandments one hair's breadth. If anything, it exalted and raised their authority. The law of the Ten Commandments is God's eternal measure of right and wrong. By it is the knowledge of sin. By it, the Spirit shows men their need of Christ and drives them to Him. To it, Christ refers His people as their rule and guide for holy living. In its right place, it's just as important as the glorious gospel. It cannot save us. We cannot be justified by it. But never, never let us despise it. It's a symptom of an ignorant and unhealthy state of religion when the law is lightly esteemed. The true Christian delights in God's law, he says. Now, the reason that Bible teachers see the relevancy and the necessity of the Ten Commandments in our lives today really has to do with their unique place in the Bible. And whenever we start looking at all these Old Testament laws and trying to figure out which ones are for us to apply literally today, um, simple first question that you can ask that helps you get out of the blocks is just, is it repeated in the New Testament? If it is, then it's a big green light for us. Okay? And all ten of these commands are repeated in the New Testament. They shape Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Um, others have seen them shaping the moral exhortations in 1 Corinthians. Um, all of them recur. Now, admittedly, when we work through this later, and we're going to work through the Ten Commandments more, as, as I'll explain in the weeks to come, Sabbath is one that we're going to have to think carefully and perhaps differently about how it is applied in our life because it has taken a different shape for us. 
But Jesus and the book of Hebrews still laud the Sabbath to us in some way, shape, or form. So the Ten Commandments simply matter to us because they reoccur throughout the New Testament. So they are for us. And beyond that, we can look the other direction. Mark Lederbach points out that these are not new laws that are being handed down for the first time on Mount Sinai to God's people. They actually pre-existed Mount Sinai. And he points out several really helpful illustrations. Back in Numbers chapter 33, those ten plagues were against the idolatry of Egypt. Commandments 1 and 2. Um, Exodus chapter 3 has a reference to God's name being honored in that situation. Um, In Exodus 16, the manna were not to be collected on the seventh day, anticipating the fourth commandment and the Sabbath. Um, Genesis 9, Ham was cursed for dishonoring his father, which is the fifth commandment. Exodus 2, Moses is held accountable for murder, and Genesis 4, Cain for killing Abel. Genesis 19, the people who lived in Sodom, they were adulterers. Genesis chapter 20, Abraham got in trouble for being a liar. Genesis 19, Lot's wife was a covetous woman. So all these commandments, in principle, preceded their being given to Moses. They preexisted it. They were given to Moses to govern the people in the promised land. And then we see they are reiterated for us in the New Testament. There is a kind of transcendental quality to these commandments. It really positions them uniquely in the scriptures. Um, Patrick Miller, in one of his works on the Ten Commandments, helps us see some other unique insights about the way the Bible talks about the Ten Commandments. He says, they are repeated twice, which really highlights their importance. They are given on Mount Sinai, and then they're renewed, um, given again. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, the passage that we're looking at today, the commandments are given by the Lord directly to the people. It says, if you look uh, in verse 4 of our passage today, that he gave it to them face to face. It says they were written by the finger of God on stone. And what that implies, it makes clear their source and their endurance. And then they're placed, of all the commandments, these ten are placed in the Ark of the Covenant, um, the Lord's dwelling place in the midst of the people. Um, While the other legislation is written on a scroll put beside the Ark, not in it. So, the Scriptures treat these ten commandments in an extraordinary way. In fact, if you go through the book of Deuteronomy, we're starting today Moses' second sermon And it's long. It runs all the way almost to the end of the book. And it's full of law, legal instructions and guidelines for God's people. If you look at the way those laws unfold, scholars have found that they are loosely governed by the Ten Commandments. Christopher Wright, in his commentary, shows it to us. He says, Deuteronomy chapter 12 and 13, in that legal section, reflects the first to the third commandments. Chapters 14 to 16, the fourth Chapters 16 to 18, the 5th, 19 to 21, the 6th, with references to the 8th and 10th, and so on. And he finds that the Ten Commandments are really a guide and a structure for all those other laws. That all those other laws are really an unfolding and an explaining of the Ten Commandments. 
Martin Luther seemed to have a special fondness, it seems, for the Ten Commandments. And he, he spoke about them often, it seems, and he says, This much is certain. Those who know the Ten Commandments perfectly know the entire Scriptures and in all affairs and circumstances are able to counsel, help, comfort, judge, and make decisions in both spiritual and temporal matters. The Ten Commandments matter to us because they are rooted in the unchanging character and timeless nature of God himself. They make a kind of inescapable moral law on our hearts. That's why you'll, you'll notice, if you ever run across them online, atheists are fond of making up their own list of Ten Commandments. Famously, uh, Christopher Hutchins has done this, or Hitchens has done this, sorry. And he... Um, has posted that on, on the internet in a variety of venues. Some of his commandments go like this. Do not condemn people on the basis of their ethnicity or color. Do not ever use people as private property. Despise those who use violence or the threat of it in sexual relations. Hide your face and weep if you dare to harm a child. And then he says, turn off that bleeping cell phone. You have no idea how unimportant your call is to us. Okay, those are some of his ten commandments that he would put forward. It's interesting, almost all of his uh, commands, except for that cell phone one, I think that's just his own idea, could be rooted underneath the umbrella, the moral compass of the Ten Commandments. So even atheists, when they attempt to make up their own moral guides, find themselves drawing on the truth of what we see in the Ten Commandments. One writer said, I doubt if any document has influenced Western culture to the degree that the Ten Commandments have. In Western civilization, they have a position of inescapable significance. The civil law of many lands has rootage in this covenant law of God given at Sinai. So the Ten Commandments, they matter to us today because of the unique place they occupy in the Scriptures because of their demonstrated transcendental nature, okay, preceding the law, shaping the law, and then even on into the New Testament, and because they're rooted in the character of God himself. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, because the second thing I want you to see about why these things matter is because they show us who God is. They reveal to us in a really extraordinary way, a way that we wouldn't think of if we were left to our own devices, the character of God. Let me show you two main ones. The first is simply this. Our God is a jealous God. I don't think we would have come up with that on our own. It's not on Christopher Hitchens' list. I'll guarantee you that. Listen to Deuteronomy starting in 5 verse 7. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in heaven above, or it's on the earth beneath, or it's in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands, that is thousands of generations, of those who love me and keep my commandments. Our God these commandments are revealed to us, is a jealous God. It's helpful to think that God is jealous for, not jealous of. Okay. God is jealous for, he's not jealous of. He's not jealous of, 
in the sense that he's not jealous like little kids are jealous. If one kid is jealous of another kid's marbles, God is not jealous like that. He is jealous for something. He is, in Scripture, explicitly jealous for two things. He is jealous for his people. That is, he's jealous for us. If you look in the prophets, Zechariah especially says it explicitly. An angel talked with Zechariah and said to him, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, that is, for my people who are there. In this sense, God is like a husband who is jealous for his bride. Woe to the one who tries to woo her away from him. We would consider that a virtue and a necessary companion of faithful love. Now, God is also jealous in the scriptures explicitly for his name. In Isaiah 42, Isaiah says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Ezekiel makes it more explicit. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob, have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. See, God is jealous for his name in the same way, for instance, that I am jealous for North Wake's reputation, for North Wake's name. That's why, if you've gone through our new members class, you know that by the luck of the draw, I'm the guy that gets to come in and talk to you about church discipline. Okay. And I come in and I explain to you that if you publicly shame the name of Christ and refuse to repent, we will lovingly pursue you. And if you resist that pursuit and still refuse to repent of that which shames Christ's name publicly, we'll remove you from our church. Because we are jealous for the name of of Christ's church as it's represented at North Wake. We would consider that, again, a virtue, a virtuous uh, jealousy. God is vigilant for that of which is the greatest value to him, his people and his name. Imagine what it would be like if God were not jealous for these things. If he didn't care if his people were faithful or unfaithful to him. If he didn't care if we honored his name or not. It would be tacitly endorsing or at least tolerating the worship of that which is evil and destructive. And that's contrary to the very nature of God, which is to love. Jealousy of this kind is much closer to love than we think it is. And that really brings us to the second thing we see in these commandments about God. He loves our neighbors. He really loves our neighbors. The whole second tier of the commandments is given to the protection of our neighbors, of their life, their property, their marriages, their trust. It's made explicit down in those last two commandments, 9 and 10. Verse 20. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. 
And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that is your neighbor's. Neighbor, neighbor, neighbor. God forbids their murder, the theft of their stuff, sleeping with their spouse. He even forbids thinking about it. Why? Because love cannot coexist with covetous desire, and God loves your neighbor. And he's concerned that we as his people reflect that love to our neighbors. See, the Ten Commandments matter to us because they reveal the heart and character of God to us in ways that we would not think of on our own. You want to know what God's like? Then meditate on these Ten Commandments. Think about the kind of God who gives them to us. He's a jealous God, jealous for his name and for you. And he loves your neighbor. That's what the Ten Commandments do for us. That's why they matter to us. They matter to us as well because they are for our good. Um, They really are good for us. They show us God's good ways for us. It was interesting in reading uh, Christopher Hitchens' um, kind of pot shots at the Ten Commandments. He could only come up with one, maybe two of the commandments that he thought were morally acceptable. Okay? He was okay, I think, with stealing and murder, if I remember right. Um, but as he talks about those things, he's really, in the other eight, he was picking at and having problems with. In contrast, the Scriptures repeatedly present to us the goodness and the beauty of God's commands for us as his people. Psalm 119, the longest psalm in the Bible, replete with um, exaltation of God's word and commands. It starts this way. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart, who also do no wrong but walk in his ways. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. See, throughout Scripture, the commands of God are celebrated as God's goodness to us, not his prohibition of what is good for us. See, it's interesting to think about how the Israelites would have felt about these commands when they were given them. Again, listen to Christopher Wright and his insights about this. He says, The Ten Commandments were given initially to a people who three months previously had been groaning in political, economic, social, and spiritual bondage. They were enslaved in Egypt just three months prior to the giving of these commands. In Egypt, they were subject to numerous gods and idols. They were subject to a pharaoh who thought he was divine and who denied the the existence of Yahweh and the rule of Yahweh. But now, by these laws, they are protected from such folly. In Egypt, they were enslaved, working ceaselessly, no doubt. But now they are protected from that kind of enslavement by the Sabbath law. And they are protected from, from subjecting the poor who are under their charge to that same persecution. In Egypt, they were subjected to genocide. You remember when all the Jewish Hebrew baby boys were killed? 
but by these laws, they are protected from any kind of unlawful killing or murder. In Egypt, they were economically exploited as slaves, but now all such lying and deception and injustice are prohibited then. See, these laws were obviously for their good, and they are for ours as well. They refrain us, restrain us excuse me, from sin and guide us into a life that's blessed by God. Deuteronomy says, if you want to live a life blessed by God, then keep these commands. That, that is the repeated teaching explicitly in Deuteronomy. Chapter 11. See, Moses says, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today. And the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Deuteronomy 30, very similar. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are in to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and to possess. See, these commands are intended to bring to us the fullness of the blessing of God on our lives. But at the same time, they are intended to expose to us our great lack and how much we need God's grace. Who among us could keep all ten commandments in all of their ramifications? Remember, Jesus said that uh, to be angry is akin to murder, and to lust in your heart is akin to adultery. So, who among us could keep all ten of these commands flawlessly for a year? How about a month? Maybe a week? Today, the Lord's Day, perhaps today for a day we could keep. You see how much we need grace, and that's the purpose of these commands, to highlight that for us. As one guy put it, I know a fellow who's as broke as the Ten Commandments. Okay. That's broke. There, there was one guy, though, in the Bible who thought he had kept the commandments. Maybe you remember his encounter with Jesus. It goes like this. As Jesus was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Look at what Jesus quotes. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept, not just today or this week, but from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. So the one 
who thought he had kept all the commandments, is saddened when Jesus applies to him the second commandment. No idols. Because he was greedy. And you remember what Paul would later say about greed. Greed, he would say, is idolatry. Romans chapter 3 says, By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. These commandments point us to our need for a Savior, to Christ and his work on the cross, bearing our sin, bearing our violations of God's law, the punishment for that. And perhaps today, you have not made what Daniel called the great exchange, not embraced that, where you trust in Christ and his bearing of the penalty for your sin rather than you having to bear it on your own. That's the gospel. And these laws point you to that, to that good news for you. So, the Ten Commandments matter. They matter to us because they're good for us. They restrain us from evil. They guide us into God's good ways. They show us our sin so that we run to Christ for mercy. The last thing I'll, I'll underscore for you today, this is just the tip of an iceberg of why these things matter to us. But the commandments show us the shape of love. You know, when we say we now are under the law of love, the commandments show us the shape of that. It's interesting, when Jesus elevates love to the supreme command, he does it in Mark chapter 12. And then one of the scribes came up, and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that Jesus had answered them well, asked him, which commandment's the most important commandment of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, and he quotes Deuteronomy, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And with these two inseparable commands, Jesus is summarizing the Ten Commandments because they begin with love of God and they move to love of neighbor. As you think about the way those commands are ordered, they are the shape of the way we love. They are also the shape of God's love for us. Think about it. His love is exclusive, we learn from the commands. It's jealous. It protects us from false gods. His love guards our families, relationships between parents and children and husbands and wives. His love guards our hearts and our minds, warning us of the dangers of our thought lives that lead us to desire that which is not ours. His love leads us into a life that is shaped by these commands. J.I. Packer said very plainly, God's love gave us the law just as his love gave us the gospel. This is the shape of the love of God for us. Imagine, again, a culture without these laws, where murder was permitted, stealing was permitted, adultery was permitted. These are the love of God for us. And they also show us the shape of our love for God. Um, the New Testament makes this explicit in a number of places. Second John 1. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. 
That's how we love God. We walk according to his commandments. Luther said that in the Ten Commandments, we have a summary of divine instructions telling us what we have to do to make our whole life pleasing to God and showing us the true source and fountain from and in which all good works must spring and proceed so that no work or anything can be good and pleasing to God, however great and costly in the eyes of the world, unless it is in keeping with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the shape of our love for God. By loving Him, we keep His commandments. By loving Him with all our heart and soul and mind and strength, no other gods, no other idols, by loving our neighbors as ourselves, refraining from harming them or their marriages or their possessions, instead looking out for their good, that's how we love God. That's how we love God. Now, some of you remember uh, several years ago, a pretty big controversy broke out in Alabama, in the Supreme Court of Alabama. A judge named uh, Roy Moore uh, originally posted some, the Ten Commandments in his, in his uh, courtroom, and some conversations, objections were made about the presence of those commandments. And then eventually, I believe, he became one of the, set on the Supreme Court of Alabama, and he wanted to put, and eventually did put, um, a large granite monument of the Ten Commandments in the courthouse, the Supreme Court building uh, in Alabama. And, of course, this created all kinds of objections and conversations and discussion, such that I believe, essentially, he was removed from the bench and the monument was removed from the courthouse. Now, there are lots of legitimate questions about how and if and whether the Ten Commandments should be posted publicly in a post-Christian pluralistic society like ours. I'm going to let people a lot smarter than me address that. Okay? But I will say this much. They must be posted. They must be. But not in granite. They must be posted in flesh and blood where you live and where you work and where you go to school. People ought to look at your lives and say, that is how God loves. That is how God loves us because of the way you post these commandments that are the shape of the love of God for, for his people. Are the commandments on display in your neighborhood for all to see? Are they on display where you work Evident by the way you treat your co-workers or at school, the way you treat your classmates. And as you think about that, is there a commandment that your sin has tarnished such that it's not on display? Is there one of those ten? It's interesting, the very first verse of our text today in chapter 1, Moses summoned all Israel, chapter 5 rather, Moses summoned all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, the statutes and the rules that I speak in your hearing today. And you shall learn them and be careful to do them. Will you bow with me in prayer, please? God, help us to treasure these ten words from you. To learn them. 
and to be very careful to do them. And God, we so need your help in order to do that. We ask for it now in Christ's name. Amen.